Amen. Shine, Jesus, shine. That's the heart of what we'll be talking about today. If you turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking today at uh, verse 1. Last week, we went through an entire chapter, Romans 11. This week, it'll be a single verse. So if you thought I covered too much last week, I'll make up for it today. It'll be a single verse, and that's because, as most of you know, it's one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, and rightfully so. It's where, after 11 chapters of doctrine, Paul moves to the bottom line application. It's where he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It was 45 years ago now that I was with my sister, Doreen, in a bookstore uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Dinkytown by the University of Minnesota, where I was about to enter into college for my undergraduate work. And up there on the wall, as we walked into the bookstore, there was a poster. And it was a poster with a quote by Jack London in beautiful calligraphy. I'd never seen it before, but I immediately fell in love with it because it's, it, it's what I wanted to be in life. And though I didn't know it then, it's like an extended paragraph of what Paul's talking about in Romans 12.1. It captured what I wanted to be, though I had no idea how to get there. And as we'll see today, I had no idea what it would cost me. I said, Doreen, get a load of that. And I read it to her as we looked at it. And then I wrote it down because at that point I couldn't afford to buy it. But she ended up buying it for me. And from that day forward, through, all through college, that poster hung in every dorm room that I lived, uh, I lived in. In fact, it was wherever I lived for many years to come. It's the ultimate application of what the gospel can do for us according to Romans 12.1. And it goes like this. I'd rather be ashes than dust. I'd rather my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled in dry rot. I'd rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. Man's chief purpose is to live, not just to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Are you wasting your days trying to prolong them? It's so easy to do that as we grow older. Reminds me of Charles Wesley's prayer. O you who came from above, pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. Or Ralph Cushman, set us afire, Lord, stir us, we pray. While the world perishes, we go our way, purposeless, passionless, day after day. Set us afire, Lord, stir us, we pray. It's what we sang last week, and this week we'll see how it can happen. Spirit of the living God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth, through all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art. Make me love thee as I ought to love. It's all over our hymns and our devotional literature. So often, though, it seems the older we get, it's so easy, the more more lethargic we get. We become sleepy and permanent planets. So how do you keep that from happening? 
Well, this verse divides into two parts, really the two stages of blaze, spirit blaze, of the blazing life, just like we sang. Really, it's the ongoing cycle of the Christian life, and that is from consecration to ignition again and again. And according to the Apostle Paul, it's all possible because of God's compassion. Last week, we saw the, really the, what I call the global mercy of the grand master who marshals you know, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of his knowledge because of his compassion for his children. And so, it's, uh, so it is that Paul begins the next section in the very next verse by saying, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the fear of God, No, by the holiness of God, no, by the judgment of God, no. All these are important motivations, but unless they're all undergirded and uh, buoyed up by another motivation, you might as well commit to Islam or to any other religion of works apart from grace. And so Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the, the, the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice in light of all those 11 chapters. Just as uh, in his mercy, he sacrificed his life for us, which was the core of all those 11 chapters. I urge you to say as we sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You were so rich in mercy that you gave your life for me, Lord. The least I could do is to give my life to you. We move today from the gospel analyzed in Romans 1 to 8 to the gospel nationalized in Romans 9 to 11 to finally the gospel actualized, the gospel realized in Romans 12 to 16. And how do you actualize the gospel in your life? Well, he goes on to say a whole lot by way of application. But the bottom line, according to Romans 12, 1, is by giving your life to him. Because at the deepest level, the Christian life is an, is an ongoing cycle, again, that begins with our consecration and ends with our ignition over and again, which will be our two simple points today. First, our consecration. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is an Old Testament image that Paul is using here of presenting a sacrifice to the priest. Uh, He couldn't sacrifice it unless you gave it. And in presenting it to him, you were giving up all rights to that property with no strings attached so he could do with it as he pleased, which usually meant what you gave him went up in flames. In Old Testament terminology, it was wholly devoted to God, just like we're called to be. You had to give it with no strings attached. Your sacrifice was acceptable to God only if it was wholly devoted to him. In fact, that's what holy meant, H-O-L-Y, to be given over, to be set apart, to be wholly devoted. You couldn't keep any part of it back, which is just what Paul means here when he says to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. He's saying, be wholly devoted, be as wholly devoted to him as he is wholly devoted to to you. But of course, it's one thing to present an animal. 
It's quite another to do that with a person. So how do you do that with a person, especially if that person happens to be you? How do you put yourself on the altar? Well, what he's talking about here, again, is your life. And to make a long story short, what all we're going to talk about today boils down to this. You give him whatever is life to you whenever he calls you to. Not just in theory, but in practice. You give him whatever is life to you whenever he calls you to. Not just in theory, but in practice. It's easy to say or to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, and to think that we've done it. And we did that when we became Christians, at least as much as we were able to at the time, which is all his love requires and his mercy. Really, not even that we give ourselves to him, but that we think that we have. The intention is what he cares about, is what we did when we prayed the sinner's prayer, which included something like this. You're on the throne now. I'm yours now to do with me and my life as you please. Though, of course, we had no idea what we were saying. We didn't know the half of it. Few people read the fine print, you know, of the Christian life about taking up your cross and about all of that. But he takes us at our word when we give our lives to him, quote, unquote, by taking us. And having converted to him at a point in time, he goes on to convert us over a lifetime. He converts us, you might say, by breaking us down, by breaking our lives down into, you know, bills and to small change so we can give more and more of ourselves to him, not just in theory, but in practice, in big ways and in small ways. It's not being preached much these days, and that is, as we'll see, that real conversion is all about consecration. Probably the best illustration of how this can happen in a big way is when God called Abraham to, uh, uh, is what God called Abraham to do with Isaac in Genesis 22, when he said, arise now and take your son, your only son, which you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That was life to Abraham, and he chose to give it to him when he was called to. And Abraham did it. In that case, he didn't have to kill it, though in some cases we do have to. But he proved his willingness. And so God went on to say, now I know, Genesis twenty two twelve, that you fear me since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You proved that you love me more than him. And Abraham went on to glow magnificently over a global family. As it says in verse 16, because you have not withheld your only son, your only son indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be best because you obeyed my voice. You love me more than anything. He had actually already given up a whole lot. He gave up his homeland, his relatives, his creature comforts, and a whole lot else. Surely that would have been enough, you'd think. I don't know about you, but I've said that too. But no, it wasn't because his life consisted of so much more than all that, as does ours to our dying day because having given ourselves to him in theory, he then goes on to initiate a process of breaking us up and breaking us down that is almost inevitably, sometimes excruciatingly painful in practice. But it's not a tyranny, it's a mercy, it's a 
severe mercy because while he loves us unconditionally the way we are, he loves us, as someone said, too much to let us stay the way we are. He loves us so much that he will not rest until he gets all of us. Because that's why Christ died, to exchange his life for ours so we could go on to exchange our life for him. What a deal. And you can't do that without giving up what's life to you. One of the best illustrations in all of Scripture of failing to do this is the rich young ruler. It's in Luke 18, 22. Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. This young ruler was like a rising star in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, he was still you know, stifled in dry rot, as Jack London said. So what about you? If he were to come today and look you in the eyes, and I I guess he's doing that by his spirit through his word today. And if he were to say one thing you still lack, what would it be? We Americans are holding on to so many things. We fill our lives with so many loves, and then we wonder why we're not full of him. And we can't do it on our own, but the good news of the gospel is that he can as we call unto him. And so we pray, spirit of the living God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth. You've got to help me do this. Through all its pulses move. But too many in our country don't even pray that. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to the outcast orphans and widows of India back in the day, back at the beginning of the century. And none of her family could understand her decision to give it all up and go to India. Here's what she wrote in a letter to her mother. If they only knew how torn I feel today. It wasn't easy. And how precious the home ties are. Oh, how could I leave you all, my own precious loved ones, and leave the joy of being ever so tiny bit of a help to you? That is not easy to give up. Unless the hand of the Lord were upon me. Only he can help us do this. Mother, isn't it strange how we sing so often, not my own, oh, not my own, Jesus, I belong to thee. We sing it so often, but we live it so little. We are very much our own. We don't live as strangers and pilgrims at all. And when someone hears the call to leave all and follow, it seems strange to us. Oh, that we may die, not in mere hymn and prayer, but in deed and in truth, to ourselves, to our self-life, to our self-love. I never knew what it meant before, dead to all one's natural earthly plans and hopes, dead to all voices, however dear, which would deafen our ear to his and alive to God. When I think of Christ's life and its utter self-death, then I think of ours, of mine, and, and the contrast is too terrible. We Christians are trying to get as much as we can out of this life, and we have followed our Savior, it seems to me, very, very far off. What's the one thing today that he wants you to focus on? The one thing you still lack. 
Maybe it's your family, your grandkids, your sons or daughters. Maybe like, or, or, um, and maybe you need to let them go. My mother wrote a book called The Perfect Love, subtitled Intensely Personal, Overflowing, Never Ending. What was her response to that love, to those mercies? It was to make a living sacrifice of her grandkids and her children. For me, she said, there was one real sacrifice in living and serving in Asia most of my adult life. Being separated from loved ones, and especially from our grown children and later on our grandchildren. We have six of them, with ages ranging from 16 to 4, each so unique and special. Often longings to see and hold and talk with them would flood my heart. At those times, it would help so much to present both my children and my grandchildren and my desires to the Lord as a love gift. That's Romans 12.1. By viewing loved ones, not as mine, but as a love gift to the Lord, I received his gift of inner release. Only he can do it. She's saying, I couldn't do it on my own. As I presented them to him, though, as a living sacrifice, I received his gift of inner release. Then the memories of my grandchildren could bring joy instead of sorrow. Though they were half a world away, just the thought of them would nourish my heart when my love for them was centered on the Lord. Maybe like her, you've had to do that for various reasons with your kids or grandkids. You've had to let them go. Or maybe you need to do it more. It's what Christ meant when he said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate, by which he means is not willing to utterly forsake, to let them go. His own father and mother and wife and children, just like Abraham did. And brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and, can, and come after me cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 26. And there are so many disciples who think they're disciples in the American church, but are not. It's what Christ meant when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And I hate this word, take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. It's like the hymn, the God of Abram prays, all I all on earth forsake. It's wisdom, fame, and power, and him my only portion make, my shield and my tower. That's how he becomes our all. Can't do it on our own, and so we pray, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Because the answer to this cold heart of ours is to be set ablaze by the love of God. And for there to be a fire, you got to put something on the altar. Can't be a fire without that. Which he does again and again in answer to our deepest desires that he placed on our hearts when we first believed. I've grown to call them my deaths after what Paul said to the Philippians, counting all things as loss, as dung for the sake of gaining Christ, the fellowship of his suffering that he talks about there, and the power of his resurrection, 
happens only on the altar. But the problem, the problem with being a living sacrifice, if you're anything like me, is that you can, you know, you can crawl off the altar. (laughs) It's hard to stay there. And so often, in his mercy, he keeps us there. And it's not a pretty sight. If you really understand what Paul's talking about here from an Old Testament perspective, it's a pretty painful sight. At first, anyway. It means a living death. We tend to view Romans 12.1 through, you know, rose-colored lenses, when in fact, it's, it's dripping with blood. A sacrifice in the Old Testament was bloody. It was costly. It, it, it was grisly. Which is good news if you think about it, because it means that just because it's painful for you to do this, just because it feels awful, does not mean you're less spiritual. Christ hated the cross. He despised the shame. But he knew what it would gain everyone, including himself. Kierkegaard wrote a powerful book about what it must have been like for Abraham, what each step of the way must have been like in the long climb to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his only son. What was it like? Well, it was like the title of the whole book called Fear and Trembling. Seems like anything can be fair game. Might not be riches, but it's going to be something. It's happened over and again in my life, as I know it has for many of you as well. Yes, I gave to my life to Christ once when I became a Christian, but I had to consecrate myself to him many times since through these large bills and small change that he breaks it up into. It's like my dad used to say, Christianity is one big yes and a million little uh uh-huhs. Until you ask, can't you leave well enough alone? Haven't I given enough? It's a million little uh uh-huhs taking up our cross daily. And so again and again, I've had to say, Lord, save me. Help me do this in big and little ways at your beck and call. Anything's fair game. When I was 10... I took all my Superman comics and threw them away because I came to see that they meant more to me than God. He was my hero, not Christ. Anything's fair game. I wrote a book once that became life to me, and so God took it. But it took 40 rejection letters from 40 publishers before I got a, finally got a clue that he wanted me to let it go. That was hard. And then it happened again a few years ago with another book. And if you've ever written a book, you know that, that it's like sacrificing your own son on Mount Moriah. It's like everything is invested in it. And unlike with Abraham, he didn't give me that one back either. We thought one of our children was going to be born with a severe deformity. And so through those long months of pregnancy, we had to put him on the altar too. And it didn't come overnight. Entering the ministry was the death for me of an ambition to become a scholar, and it was a process of kicking and scratching that got me there on the altar, and I tried to get off several times. And once I made the decision to do that, there was all sorts of things that happened. Interim pastoring was the the last thing we wanted to do. Even after being at the mature age of 30, 40 years of ministry, felt like it could be a living hell. But guess what? We, we found life there like we never knew possible. I'm listing these so that you don't feel like you're the only one. 
and that there's something wrong with you or the Christian faith, that it's not easy, that it can feel like Calvary. I can tell you truly that whatever life you see in this pastor comes from the death of the pastor. And whatever life you don't see means that there's still more to do. And the same is true for you. There will be more to give so long as we live until we give him our final breath, you know, our last pieces of change in our pockets. So many of you have been through your deaths, and Julie and I have talked to many of you, and as a result, there is a depth here in this congregation that's pretty unusual. There's a depth of wisdom and understanding and so much more. Many of you have done the same, and maybe today, for some of you, it's not gone from death to life yet. You feel stifled and dry rot But I'm here to tell you today that if you're feeling dead on the inside because of what's, because of, because you've offered what's life to you, he will kindle your life anew. If it's not in this life, it'll be in the glory that will shine brighter with his fire forever as a result of your death. Every atom of you in magnificent glow, thanks to every atom in you dying. Forever and ever. Today, God's saying to some of you, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. Give him the fodder, and he will send the fire. But for others here, maybe it's not true. What is it for you? Are you have you become a sleepy and permanent planet in orbit around this church, stifled in dry rot? Have you, like Amy Carmichael said, been trying to get as much as you can out of this life following the Savior only from afar? Maybe you need to get up there on the cross, out of your comfort zone, out there in some ministry. Maybe it's your time that you need to offer more of. Maybe it's your talents. Maybe it's your tithe. Maybe you're like I am sometimes. You think that because you've gone through so many deaths in the past that somehow you've graduated. Surely, Lord, you've arrived. Surely he's got to be through with me yet. Whatever it is to you, you might pray this with A.W. Tozer. As I said, it's all through the devotional literature. We can't do it on our own. That's the gospel, but he can. And so pray this with me as you feel led, dear Lord. My coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting, fear and trembling. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished more than you, so long that they have become a very part of my living self, so that you may reign there without rival. Amen. And what happens then? Well, that moves us from our consecration to our ignition. (laughs) How do you get closer to him if you've been following from afar? Well, get up there on the altar and you'll feel his fire in the end. And in in the end, the pain will turn to pleasure. Because there's something that happens when he finally gets one of our rivals 
his rivals up there on the altar, and it stays there long enough so you truly die to it. Many of you know what it's like from the death of a job, maybe, to the death of a spouse or the slow death of a spouse until you thought, how could I ever feel alive again? And then it happens. When I finally put to death my academic ambitions back in seminary, the Spirit of God kindled pastoral gifts in me that I never even knew I had, and he stoked them to life like I never knew possible, but it was him, not me. After my book went up in smoke at our first church, my ministry back in Houston caught fire like never before, because you see, this is a message of hope. It goes from consecration to ignition again and again. It's an ongoing cycle, a death spiral, you might say, into greater life, an upward fall. As more and more we count all things as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord in a blaze of his coming to life in you in the most unexpected ways. Deeper and deeper, said Lilas Trotter, must be the dying. She was the great missionary to the Muslims in North Africa. Deeper and deeper must be the dying, and wider and fuller is the life tide that it liberates. She writes, the death of the cross was the point where God's floodgate opened, and to that gate we come again and again as our lives unfold, and through it we pass, even while still on the earth, to our joyful resurrection, to a life each time more abundant, for each time the dying is deeper as we grow older. In our consecration, God takes us at our word and strips us for a while of all things that made life beautiful, or so it feels. It may be outward things that have to drift away, bodily comfort, leisure, culture, reputation, friendships, as our hands refuse to grasp anything but God's will for us till no experience, no resting place remains uh, to us in heaven and on earth but God himself till we are, get this, wrecked on God. That's Calvary. When this happens, she says, have faith like the perennial flowers do at the end of their season. Have faith to let old things go. Even when a plant's flower is reached, it is not a finality. There is no end in nature, but every end is a beginning. Life leads on to new death and new death back to a blossoming of life again. Over and over, when we think we know our lesson, surely, Lord, it's enough, we find ourselves beginning another round of God's divine spiral. As Paul said, always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. As consecration yet again, leads to ignition. Which is why Jim Wallace said, the cross of Christ is not only the symbol of our atonement, it is the very pattern and definition of our lives. I'll never forget one of those crucifixions. 
After we gave up our son to be born in whatever condition God chose, God set us ablaze in a whole new church, moving us from Houston to Estes Park. He was five years old. I mean five, five months old. And then six years later, we gave it all up, our beautiful home with its picture, you know, postcard view of Long's Peak and the twin sisters and herds of elk and deer that would, that would flock through our backyard, a good paycheck, friends, both our families. At the time, my folks were in the Springs. Julie's folks, of course, were in Loveland. No one could understand why we were leaving, but we just knew that God had lifted the call and that our new call was to let it all go yet again. We almost didn't have a choice that to stay would have been disobedient. Because you give him or you try to whatever is life to you whenever he calls you to. Not just in theory, but in practice. In some ways, the hardest part was leaving behind the fireplace that I had just built the year before. Night after night, I'd sit in front of our fireplace long after the family had gone to bed. It was the one, uh, it was out of river rock. It, it rose from floor to ceiling about 10 feet. I installed gravity vents so it would heat up other rooms in the house. The firebox was a high efficiency unit that I ordered from Canada. And I'm telling you, those coals would burn forever. I felt dead on the inside, and I'd sit up night after night in front of the fireplace, long after the family had gone to sleep, and I'd watch, I'd watch the embers almost with envy because the fire had gone out of my heart. And so those embers seemed like a miracle. They remind me of the, of the stones of fire on the mountain of God that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 28. And there I was, stifled in dry rot. It was a death. They were molten, almost alive. It's like these currents of gold and red would ebb and flow deep in the heart of this fire. But to me, it seemed an even greater miracle would be for it ever to happen again in me. During that time, Julie's folks paid for us to go on a family missions trip to Mali, Africa, where her brother Brian was a missionary with YWAM. He was supported by this church at the time. He was with Youth with a Mission. And to be honest, going to Mali, Africa was the last thing that I wanted to do. But, but I knew a missions trip, I knew in theory, is a good way to give yourself back to him when your heart is cold. One of the best ways, in fact, as many of you have discovered. But what a gift. And for this and many other reasons, we'll be forever indebted to Julie's folks. How so? Well, Mali's one of the three poorest countries on planet Earth. Uh, Mali makes Haiti look rich. Some of you know that Haiti has the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Its per capita income is $400 a year. Mali's is $260 a year. And so this rich American family had some interesting experiences there, some rather amusing. On our last night, they had this banquet for us where we all ate with our hands out of these common bowls uh, that, were, that were on the ground. And they filled them with rice and broth and you know, a few scraps of chicken. And then you'd all huddle around on the ground and, and, uh, and dig in with your hands. I'll never forget what our youngest, Cameron, said, the one who was supposed to be born with a genetic disability. He was five years old then. 
He was hunkered down over this bowl along with five or six other people. And all of a sudden, he looked up at me, his, his hands covered with food. He couldn't believe he could eat with his hands. And he said, I could eat a ton of this slush. And then he dug back in. Luckily, they knew no English. Because for them, it was a big deal. Well, our first night there, we went to one of their evening meetings. There was some teaching, and there was a whole lot of singing. Do those Africans know how to worship God or what? And there was no electricity, so they had this little generator outside for the lighting, and it kept breaking down, so the lights went on and off, but they didn't even notice. And at one point, one of the leaders stood up. His name was Denny. He was a French-speaking man from Switzerland. He was on the opposite side of the room, and he said a few things, and then he turned and looked right at me. And he spoke French, so Julie's brother started to whisper to me the translation of what he was saying. He looked at me, and he, he said something that, that might be true for some of you here today. He said, there's a man who walked in this room tonight, and I wrote it down afterwards, and I saw in his face one whose life has turned into ashes, and he yearns for the coals to be bright again. That's the exact image that he used, right from our fireplace. He's confused about many things, and he must stop trying to understand God's ways with just his mind, because God's ways are not our ways. And you must humble yourself and let people pray for you, and the coals will be rekindled. And then he sat down. I would have crossed the ocean to hear that word. Maybe it's a word for some of you. After the meeting, Julie suggests that we we ask him to pray for us. And I didn't know, I don't know if it was my pride or what, it probably was, but I said no. Maybe next week. Never do today what you can put off till tomorrow, especially if it's humbling. That was our first night in Mali. At the very end of our time, we went to another meeting. It was before the banquet that I just told you about. And at the end of the meeting, before we ate, Denny stood up again, and once again, he looked straight at me. And here's what he said in front of the whole group, Julie's brother translating at my side. He says, I look in your face and I see a man who's been in a deep well. And I'm thinking, huh, that's the other image. How did he know? That was the other image that I've been thinking about for over two months out of Psalm 103, who redeems your life from the pit, deep well. So many times I wondered, Lord, will will you ever redeem my life from this pit? Maybe you've been wondering that. And now I hear Denny, who I never met, saying, I see a man who's been in a deep well. You've been doing everything you can to climb out of it. And by his grace, you are almost free. But only God can deliver you. And I'm here to tell you that God brought you to Mali Afra to to give you hope because your well will be filled to overflowing it. And, and, And I thought of what he said two weeks before. You must humble yourself and let us pray for you. And he said, only God can deliver you. You must let us pray for you. And I felt Julie's elbow at my side. And so I said to her brother, ask him if he'd pray for me. And he translated my request, and Denny got back up, and I stood up, and I walked to the front, and he put his arm around me. And in front of 30 or so Africans, along with some from England and Holland and Nigeria and South Africa, that's why we am, this French-speaking brother from Switzerland in Mali, Africa, prayed for this poor, prideful 
American pastor. He prayed the most fervent prayer. And though I didn't understand it all, I felt my heart strangely warmed, like with burning coals from my fireplace, from the mountain of God. And God led us into a whole new chapter that rekindled the fire like never before. And God knows it wasn't just me. It's hardly at all me. It was Julie's elbow. (laughs) And it would never have happened without her folks. And you have your stories too. You give him the fodder, and he will send the fire. Maybe not right away, but it will happen. And maybe that's why he brought you to this service today, to give you a word of hope all the way from Mali, Africa. That if you've been a living sacrifice in any way, small or great, you'll come back with more atoms in you, a glow than ever before, individually and as a congregation. All of that is just fodder for the fire that will in the end be far better than whatever it may have cost you to gain it. Until the day we shine like the sun, as Christ said, in the kingdom of the Father, every atom in us in magnificent glow. It's the ultimate application to 11 chapters of doctrine. As Paul said, it's your reasonable service of worship. Speaking of worship, let me close with this. It's the worship of our life that he's talking about here. The worship of our lives that needs to back the worship of our lips. It's the secret of genuine worship, which is our second value as a church. And that is growing in our devotion to God through ever deeper consecration. We grow in our devotion to God as our value of genuine worship says, to exalt and enjoy him with heartfelt adoration. To go from consecration to an ignition of our lips that's genuine because it comes from the ignition of our lives. That's worship. As the worship leaders come forward, Paul says it's our reasonable service of worship, which is the best translation. That's because it's so eminently reasonable to give him our lives in light of his great compassion, in light of all that he's done, in light of all that he does as we give it up for him. And on top of that, we can't do it on our own. And so in so many ways, it's so totally reasonable to pray Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee.